Welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. I'm Max Abelson of Bloomberg News. Max joins me today because Joe is still off, but I think uh, we're going to have a good show. Max, have you been watching that new TV series, Billions? You know, a little known fact about me is that my girlfriend Annie and I do not own a television. Really? So no billions for us. All right, then you're going to find this interesting. Uh, it's a show basically about a high-flying hedge fund manager who's dealing with regulators. Let's put it that way. Most of it is him wheeling and dealing in stocks, uh, shorting things, making short-term directional bets, going long or short. Uh, maybe it's easier if we just play a clip. Who said this deal is going to close? Ben said it would this morning. Me? Everyone's saying it. Who is this? My new analyst. Well, if we hired you, you must be a genius. Yale? Stanford. Then Wharton. Okay, Stanford Wharton. Electric Sun is controlled by Kazowitz. He also owns 19.3% of Lumatherm, backdoored through his stake in Southern Wind. You see that block trade last Thursday come out of Merrill? Yeah. That was Fortress cashing out their shorts before the merger. Wasn't it? Trade was at 12.52 when everyone was at lunch, which tells me they wanted it to be missed. You guys caught it, which is something, I guess. But you're looking at it backward. Electric Sun's offer was just a ploy to temporarily prop up Lumatherm. Typical Kazowitz play to bail on a loser. He's an animal. The block trade was Kazowitz getting out of Southern Wind, getting out of Lumatherm. He wrote the story, now he's out, which means you need to be out. In fact, short. It'll slide to 32 and change after word breaks. Wow. Is today's episode going to be your review of Billions? <laughs> no, I will spare you all my opinions of Billions. Uh, I actually wanted to bring it up for two reasons. Um, mostly because our guest today is Dan Zwern, and he's a really well-known hedge fund manager. But he's never actually done the type of stuff that most people seem to think hedge funds do, based on clips like the one we just heard. In fact, he made his career providing capital to thousands of companies with a few other financing options, basically going where banks fear to tread. Well, at least up until recently, banks were pretty brave about that kind of thing. So. What he does must be interesting. Yeah, and we're going to talk about how that opportunity came up. And one of the reasons it is really interesting is because we often hear regulators and lots of other people talking about non-bank financial institutions or providers of credit, which sometimes go by the label shadow banks, right? And as soon as you hear the term shadow banks, you think, oh, this is a bad thing. It's risky. There's something nefarious about it. But actually, as we're going to hear, shadow banks can fill a gap, and sometimes that gap needs to be filled. I still get like a small shiver up uh, like the, the small of my back, up my spine when I hear shadow banking, so <laughs> I feel like I'm going to need a little bit of convincing from Dan and from you that I that it's that it's a, you know it's not as shadowy a thing as its name implies. All right, well we'll see if we could do that. But before we do, there's one other reason I brought up billions, and that is because Dan had his own run-in with regulators just before the financial crisis. Right, and I remember that because of the wonderful Bill Cohan, my friend, known to known to listeners and readers as William D. Cohan. <laughs> his byline: He wrote a, a a really long and and detailed and beautiful story about about those travails not too long ago in, in Bloomberg. Right, and. I urge all our listeners to go read that story, but in the meantime, I'm going to summarize very quickly. Basically, it's about how Dan's hedge fund ran into some accounting problems, and then investors started pulling out money. Uh, 
Dan eventually closed it down. It used to have $12 billion worth of assets. Uh, eventually, however, he was cleared of all wrongdoing by the U.S. securities regulator. And since then, he's been busy rebuilding a different fund. And we're going to find out today what exactly he's doing. Let's get started. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's get this out of the way first. Uh, back in 2006, 2007, you were this really high-flying hedge fund manager. I saw one commentator who referred to you as hedge fund perfection. <laughs> uh, and then this SEC thing happened. Tell us what exactly went down. Well, look, we had a we had a wonderful business uh, that made seven hundred million dollars in its last year, two point seven billion dollars overall. We had mm -hmm. six billion of equity, twelve billion of assets, three hundred good employees, and another eight hundred associated employees around the world, and did business in twenty five countries, financing a lot of the companies and and assets and and consumers and real estate properties that otherwise couldn't have been financed. Um, so we were doing well, and I think doing good. And uh, unfortunately, we had a uh, an internal bad egg that um, uh, we're. Uh, some folks that I had assigned to tighten the controls of our business uh, found out. I directed the firm to turn them in. And unfortunately, um, the process by which uh, it was made clear that neither I nor the firm mm -hmm. uh, had anything to do with that person's activities took longer than it otherwise should have. And so, while we never had any uh, an, an audit changed uh, or requalified or amended or any of those things, it took so long for that to clear up that we had to uh, move along with the firm. Tell us what your fund actually did in order to achieve the returns that you're known for. Uh, sure. Well, we. We refer to ourselves as a global chaser of illiquidity, um, and so fundamentally, we wanted to illiquidity being assets that might be hard to buy or sell or trade in some way. Correct, correct, and and it, it doesn't necessarily mean assets that don't trade on a marketplace mm -hmm. because at times, even assets that are you know that have a, a QCIP number on and trade on, over Bloomberg. Um, have very little better offer, and so we like to say that we'll we'll run into every house on fire and and stay in some of them. Hmm. And ultimately, we want to be in a position where both, as we say, both borrower uh, and lender, or both buyer and seller, have the exact same view on value. Uh, but the other guy just needs our money, as opposed to having a directional view on on asset prices. You said a second ago that you guys did both well and good, and it sounds like you definitely did well while while the going was good. Explain to to us why you also feel like you were doing good. Uh, well, to, to be clear, unlike some other people, I'm not going to claim to be do, have, have done the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> however, uh, the world is a, within finance is a big have and have not world. And there are a lot of very viable consumers, uh, properties, companies, assets that don't actually intrinsically have materially large amounts of credit risk in them that for non-value reasons might not be able to access credit. And you know, other, over time, banks have done that. And what you find is there's a reflexive characterization that sometimes people have. Let's say, well, banks aren't that smart at what they do, and they can't really do this thing, et cetera, et cetera. But if you were scaling a bank in the level that banks are scaled, and you had to create a very set set of rules for thousands of employees to follow regarding who should get credit, you're necessarily going to have to make some pretty blunt instrument rules to allow yourself not to get into problems. Mm -hmm. And so that leaves all of these kind of idiosyncratic, funkier things that otherwise should get credit, and if it were done one by one, would get credit, out in the cold. So in other words, you were lending where others were, were fearing to go. Or by policy, et cetera, couldn't go. 
right? So you might frequently see talk to folks at banks who'd say, well, geez, we would do this, I would do this, but our institution can't do this for some sort of rule that had very little to do with the creditworthiness of the underlying asset. You know, I want to be honest with you and tell you where I sit in the newsroom is literally physically close to my very good friend Zeke Fox, Mm -hmm. who writes beautifully about the nuances and sometimes the criminality and or at least just the the very gray area of hedge funds lending to small businesses. Sometimes the rates can get very, very high. I remember in Cohan's piece, he mentioned um, that you lent to a company that leased slot machines to casinos on Indian reservations. Mm-hmm. And just speaking honestly, in the same way that, that we're going to we're gonna talk about in a while, how shadow banking sometimes makes me nervous just from the mere sound of it, mm-hmm. I also just have to be honest and say, I, it also makes me nervous, even though, mind you, I don't know too much about it, when I hear about hedge funds lending to things like you know, Indian casinos and slots. Is that something that, that you felt comfortable with? Can, can you did you have to deal with people who who felt less comfortable with and explain why this was a good a good thing? No, you know, at the at the end of the day, Indian reservation gaming facilities are large money makers for those reservations in that case. And to the extent that there are machines that they have where they don't want to deploy capital, but there's you know a perfectly uh, reasonable credit to be had. You know, folks like us could do it in that particular case because those slot machines were on Indian reservation property. You needed to have a gaming license for that reservation uh, in order, such that if you ever had to foreclose on the assets and operate them, you'd have a license to do so. And so we had to partner with a very specialized guy who happened to have such a license in order to be there and provide the capital that a bank wouldn't for them. And so, to the extent that that gaming facility thrived and helped and benefited its tribe and was a perfectly legitimate business, uh, you know, we don't see an issue with that. It worked out in the end. It didn't. So, your old fund was all about investing in illiquid assets, extending credit to all sorts of different businesses and companies. You have this new fund now, essentially doing a very, very similar thing. Yes. Walk us through the idea here and if there is actually a bigger gap to be filled now. Well, I think there's there's two different uh, parts of the story. The first is, you know, where is the market today? And the answer to that is that in fact post the crisis there is, you know, a, a much larger addressable market for the kind of things than we that we do than there perhaps ever has been. And uh, arguably the people who are addressing that market um, are as few as they ever have been. When we had our prior business, the largest competitor we ha- competitors we had were the internal proprietary groups of the investment banks. Which are all gone now. Which are all gone now. And that's not to say all of those people and assets are gone, because they a large number of them have migrated to a very small number of very large alternative investment firms. Mm-hmm. Large in a way that we never dreamed possible at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time when $10 billion of assets was uh, a big deal. Uh, and many of these folks with whom I competed with, uh, with whom I competed, are now you know thirty, forty, eighty, one hundred and twenty billion dollars. And so, what's interesting is that, in some ways, the same gaps are available because they can only write checks that are you know seventy-five or one hundred million at a shot. And so, in the absence of them, the investment banks and commercial banks, the number of the very large number of smaller opportunities out there to be financed is as big as it's ever been. So, if you're looking for sort of smaller opportunities, how do you actually source your loans? Because you and I have spoken about this before, mm-hmm. and it is an interesting on-the-ground sort of process. Sure. 
Well, uh, to the extent that things are intermediated by brokers of various sorts, they almost by definition tend to be less appealing. And so, because <laughs> they charge a fee. No, it's not that. It's just that they show it to lots of people ah. uh, because they're looking for the fastest path to that fee. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, we have found that uh, in the types of things that we do. Um, there are frequently people who have very specialized knowledge, whether that's sourcing, uh, analysis capability, or even servicing of assets. Uh, they may not have all three of those, um, and they may specialize in very idiosyncratic things, uh, but they have a f- special skill. And we like to find those kind of folks uh, and use that to supplement our our team on the our our own teams, um, uh, where we can partner with them in a very highly financially aligned way where they're putting up significant amounts of their own money uh, to go after this unique, these unique assets that leverage their unique capabilities. I think you're going to find over the next few minutes, and our listeners will too, that Tracy is going to be the one asking the sophisticated questions because she's really no, Max, good. No, I believe in you. You can do it too. I, I'm going to be asking. I have a basic question. When, when in the olden days, when the Wall Street banks were allowed to be doing some of the stuff that you're good at, yeah, do you think? Just looking at the system and, and worrying about its safety, was it a good thing when Goldman Sachs, for example, um, I've written a little bit about their special situations group, which had some brilliant people. I'm familiar with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I assume they were in those good old days, they were probably your rivals. I'm rivals betting. and partners. Was it a good thing that they had so much capital to play with? Uh, I think one could take the view that them having capital and deploying it in itself was not particularly problematic. Um, where I think some people might have had issues were situations where it was not necessarily clear where they were acting as an intermediary and where they were acting as a principal. And in everything I've ever done, you know, there's no question we have only one thing to do, which is deploy capital and make a disproportionate return per unit of risk. Um, so I would say, as an example, um, there was a situation with a European bank in the early 2000s that had some assets that were a problem. And we went and met with them, and they were represented by their trusted advisors, Goldman Sachs. And those guys were in the room when we got to meet with the bank. And it quickly became clear that three of the four people in the room were, in fact, our competitors, not their investment bankers. Hmm. Um, And so, needless to say, we didn't get a chance to do much with that bank. And so, I think there was Perhaps it was overblown, but there was a perception that there was a mix of principal and agent there that was not always clear. And insofar as that perception was out there, it might have caused some issues. Uh, But you are talking about an incredibly well-run business and firm, one that made it through the crisis much better than virtually everyone else, that had a huge number of really smart people. And I think unlike virtually any other competitor that they had, um, created a culture where there was information flow and information sharing that was really unique. Whatever you may say about their goals, they were incredibly effective at pursuing them. All right, but we did have this confusion about principal versus agent. Mm-hmm. So whether they're doing this as a sort of financial intermediary versus trading for their own accounts, profiting it from it for themselves, that really came to the forefront during the financial crisis. And afterwards, we saw regulators pile in all these new rules, basically restricting and or making it more expensive for banks to undertake some of this activity. And simultaneously, we saw guys like you and those asset managers you mentioned, or alternative managers you mentioned earlier, start to get big Mm -hmm. as they picked business 
off of the banks. Yes. And then, of course, we heard from regulators that actually they were worried about the growth of the shadow banking sector. Right. Should we be worried? Well, with any sorts of uh, idiosyncratic finance over time, there are clearly cycles. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that one of the biggest risks in any of these activities is the moral hazard that they bring. And part of the way we structured our business with these joint ventures allowed us to have an extremely variable cost of effective infrastructure. So there was nobody out there who said, well, I need to do things in order to get paid. right?" And so we took away that moral hazard in our business. And it and it importantly allowed us to find, not only find good things to do, but even more importantly, avoid things that were not there, that were not good to do. Can you give me an example of one of those types of things to avoid? Uh, well, so as an example, um, uh, in the last energy cycle, when Enron and Merrant and uh, Aquila and all those firms that many of the, whose names we don't remember anymore were blowing up, um, and oil and gas prices were low, this is kind of O2-ish, uh, O3, we ended up buying the uh, onshore natural gas lending business of uh, Merrant at about 60 cents on the dollar. Bargain, and basically. Pretty much. And so, and again, we're not macro people, right? So we don't know about oil and gas prices. What we knew was that in the high $1, we'd get our money back. In the low mid twos, we'd make a nice return. And beyond that, it would be really good. And it turned out to be four bucks, and so it was really good. <laughs> wow. Um, but more importantly, uh, at that point, Nobody in town in Houston was making uh, on on balance sheet loans to energy companies, and so based on that knowledge, we stepped in and actually worked with a couple of local folks down there to create what then became the most significant on on uh, onshore natural gas lender uh, out of Houston. Once uh, banks started to reaccustom themselves to assuming that risk, uh, we couldn't really compete, um, uh, or that those opportunities couldn't compete for our capital. Uh, and so we ended up just doing less and less. And so now when prices are back where they are, we're now, thir- in fact, third time around down in Houston and Dallas and other places looking at that stuff all over again. Um, you know, when I think about shadow banking, I think about, because I'm a total nerd, I think about the repo market before 2008. We've been talking about shadow banking in the context of non-banks providing credit intermediation. But the definitions can get really muddled. Are there specific types of shadow banks that you would be more concerned about? For instance, say, a liquid fund buying up the kind of illiquid assets that you specialize in? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I don't know that there's a dictionary definition of, of shadow banking, uh, other than... If know, there is, I'm sure it's a poor one. Yeah. What I would say is, if you want to think about what risks are significant now, uh, in the wake of the regulation that happened, I think it's less about uh, the market participants, less about Goldman Sachs participating in the markets, its principal, et cetera, and much more about the provision of liquidity. And so, what has happened with the new regulations is that there's tremendous disincentive for anybody to provide liquidity of any sort. And so we have not yet remotely tested what it's going to feel like when people who have for many years been used to being able to get out of things um, suddenly don't have a bid. And is that Basel regulations or Dodd-Frank? I think that's a combination of Basel, Dodd-Frank, and importantly, Volcker. Because the when insofar as you preclude what otherwise would be market-making activities and over-the-counter products by investment banks, you preclude them from, quote-unquote, proprietary trading. Um, 
when you're making trading for their own accounts. Correct. When you're making markets in over-the-counter products, you can't afford to just be a willing buyer or seller at a price because your own customers will take advantage of you and you will quickly get you know busted and 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 put out of business. Hmm. And so you have to have some directional views as to what's going on. And so to preclude them from quote unquote proprietary trading in the way that has been done has basically sucked the liquidity out of virtually every OTC trading market. And the effects of that have yet to be felt in a material way because since July 13 uh, when kind of Draghi stepped in with his kind of jawboning about rates being low forever uh, in the in the periodic times when that notion has been tested uh, and then kind of we've seen recovery driven by central bankers uh, since then we've yet to really feel how utterly devoid of liquidity the markets are do you think there's a chance that what Paul Volcker would call uh Casino banking, you know, that if there's any chance that by preventing the Wall Street <clears throat> firms from trading on their own account, yeah, casino banking, you would call that, that that is nothing but a, a plus for for society. That that's going to protect uh, taxpayers from having to bail out banks again, and that the downside, the downside will be minimal, as it has been at least so far. Nothing horrible has happened because um, liquidity isn't as lush as it once once was. Do you, and that's optimistic. Is, is there any chance things will play out that way? Do you, or, or are you worried that something scary is going to happen? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, Buffett says in the long term, markets are, uh, uh, are weighing machines, not voting machines. And so, credit markets haven't been allowed to find their level yet. Um, and they've been trying uh, episodically for the last couple of years. And so, um, as you saw a little bit in the last little shock we had in December and January, what happened then? There were a series of funds that were investing in corporate uh, OTC product that had no liquidity in their assets, but had lots of liquidity on their liability side. Right? They were mutual funds structured. Mutual uh, funds, exchange traded funds, that sort of thing. Well, specifically mutual funds that were open ended mm. with daily liquidity that were invested in things that didn't have a bid. Right. And they had to shut down, and it was very ugly. And that was only a little bit of a beginning. That was things like Third Avenue? Third Avenue. Yes. Yeah. That was an example. And so there are a lot of open-ended mutual funds. There are a lot of you know, monthly or quarterly liquidity um, alternative investment funds that are investing in assets that, in any type of a shock, won't have a bid or won't have a material bid. And so you'll see the beginnings of that when that happens. Not unlike what happened with BNP in July of 07, immediately preceding the crisis, where there was simply no bid, no way to mark. They had to just freeze uh, to see where things leveled out. Remind me, they had a bunch of, was it structured mortgages. finance or of some sort? It was, it was re- I mortgages? believe it was residential mortgage-related. Uh, I think it was cash mortgage-related securities. And then, basically, word got around that they were trying to offload them, but couldn't? Is that right? Well, by that point, there was uh, it was very unclear uh, what the bid was for any of that stuff because people who were financing it suddenly had to pull back all at the same time. A lot of people who owned it had to go the same way. Mm-hmm. What happens is suddenly there are these gap downs in pricing when everybody's going the same way in something, right. uh, and so you don't see that frequently. And you know it's been a several years, so there's not a lot of guys who are maybe. Not at the trigger, if you will, at that point, uh, who might now be, who didn't kind of feel what that felt like uh, when it was there. And if, if you've been through several cycles, you know that those are very painful times. And at no point has there been as little liquidity as there has been now for the last you know 20 plus years. 
You know, on the one hand, what we're talking about here is regulators essentially overstepping their bounds and doing things that, in the long run, you worry aren't going to be great for the markets. And I have to say, it's it's hard not to remember that it's also regulators that, in a way, essentially help shut down DB's Wern. Do you feel like you learned anything? Do you, do you feel like you came out of that whole episode more cynical, more skeptical about the role of regulators in the United States markets? Well, I think uh, I, I think there's nothing wrong with good regulators and good regulation. I think we are happy to have uh, sufficient or more than sufficient numbers of both. Uh, but simply making more rules and making throwing more bodies at the problem as opposed to taking the rules and bodies you have and making them better is probably not the optimal way to go. And perhaps some of that occurred you know, immediately uh, after the crisis. We had a very specific situation um, that was unfortunate and, you know, it, w- it led to uh, you know a lots of good people uh, losing lots of great opportunity um, that shouldn't have had to do so in a, in a wonderful business having to go away. Uh, but no, I think I was uh, skeptical and cynical to, to begin with, and I still am. All right. Uh, Dan Zorn is CEO of Arena Investors. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Okay, Max, what'd you think about that? You know, I always find it so interesting when like really smart, powerful hedge fund managers want to describe themselves as doing well and good. Mm-hmm. Clearly, he aims to um, bounce back from what happened a few years ago and provide liquidity where he feels like it doesn't exist from other places. So, you know, I've been covering shadow banking for a long time. I've also been covering the liquidity question that we just discussed. And I can really see it from both sides. I can see, on the one hand, how regulators want to de-risk bank balance sheets. But I can also see how regulators, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, maybe rush to do a few things and potentially, unknowingly, shifted risk into another sector. And now that might be a good thing, right? Because guys like Zwern maybe know what they're doing, they have deep pockets, they can handle that sort of illiquid credit asset. But there are other types of funds, like the mutual funds that Dan mentioned, that I do worry about. It's lucky that we're just journalists and not regulators, because <laughs> I don't I don't know how I would deal with this. I agree with you. I feel sympathetic to the idea that if you overregulate the banks, this activity will move into corners that um, you know won't be able to handle it well. And on the other hand, I feel worried about uh, the big banks Getting involved in risky things that belong in um, entities that aren't backed by government guarantees. So I'm glad we're just writers. All right, let's go celebrate the fact that we're not regulators. Uh, I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. You can catch me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. I'm Max Abelson at Bloomberg News on Twitter at Max Abelson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.